Welcome back to the pod. I'm Hannah, one of your co-hosts and an intern at the college. Today I'm with my new co-host, Alexandria Jaskowski, back with an all-new episode of Michigan State University's College of Arts and Letters Liberal Arts Endeavor podcast. Thanks, Hannah. I'm so excited to be back on the podcast this week. It's always fun to represent Michigan State University, especially after that really awesome win that we had this weekend. That was incredible. We were both in Ann Arbor for the game, too, so... It was a lot of fun. It's we really got to fun, watch it with our friends, and it was a good, good win to good watch. Good win. <laughs> Well-deserved. Yes, definitely. <laughs> um, in our second episode of the year, we're back. We're going back in time with Keith Witter, a curator of history for the Mackinac State Historic Parks and author of the book, Michigan Agriculture College, An Evolution of a Land Grant Philosophy, 1855 to 1925. Keith is going to tell us about the history of Michigan State University and, more importantly, the impact that the liberal arts had during this time period at MSU. Keith, it's so great to have you with us today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Will do. Thank you very much for having me. Of course. Um, Actually, I was born in Wisconsin, and uh, I grew up on a dairy farm, but uh, had no interest in going into farming. (laughs) Uh, And I should say at the outset that Probably as a child uh, growing up, although growing up on a farm is a great place to grow up, I, w- I had one desire, and that was, how do I get off this farm? Because <laughs> I, did, I didn't want to be milking cows seven days a week, uh, 52 weeks of the year. And so I went to Wheaton College, which was a Christian liberal arts college in Illinois for my bachelor's and did my master's degree at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in history. And I taught high school for three years in in Brookfield, which is a suburb of west of Milwaukee. In 1971, I moved to Michigan to to take a job working as a historian and ultimately curator of history for what's now called Mackinac State Historic Park. So I worked up at Fort Mackinac and Fort Michelin Mackinac and those places. That was my career job. In 1982, while still working, I I started a Ph.D. program here at Michigan State and finished that in 1989. And uh, one of the cool things about that was that's where I met my wife, Agnes, who's a librarian at Michigan State and has been there for, I think this is her 39th year. Oh, wow. (laughs) And after I retired from Mackinac in 1997, I went to work for the MSU Press as a a part-time editor for several years. And while there, I learned about the sesquicentennial history project and so I talked to Fred Bohm, who was a director, that I was interested in maybe doing the first volume. And he said, well, write me a letter of application. I did and was chosen to write it. So, Amazing. Wow. That's really exciting. So um, you ended up going through with it and writing that book. So will you tell us a little bit about, tell us a little bit about it and give us kind of a background of what the book is about? Sure. Um, I think, first of all, I would respond by what was the, you know, uh, what was so fascinating, the most fascinating thing I discovered. And that was really a twofold thing, the resistance of farmers to the college. And the college was established with the intention of basically training and teaching their sons and ultimately their daughters as well into how to be better farmers. That was the farmer's perception of it, many of the farmers. But the students, on the other hand, were committed to wanting a well-rounded education, which was more than just learning how to plant corn, how to spread manure, how to do a better job with um, milk with your cows, managing your, your herds and your flocks and the like. And But they saw a much bigger world than their, their parents, and, and something you probably see today as, as, as you are young folks and, and you have a different perception of the world than your parents and your grandparents. Well, that went on here. And as a result, 
the commitment that the students had to a well-rounded education helped them. The college then would respond to that and did respond to it, and they were able to, um, uh, and one of the things that they, they wanted to do was to make sure there was an English course, that they would get a more than just agriculture and science, but also English in the liberal arts. Amazing. I'm listening to you talk. It kind of seems like it mirrored your life living on the farm about how you wanted to get off the farm and how these students back when it was Michigan Agriculture College wanted to learn about more than just farming. So That's I the like that. I had too. That <laughs> kind of mirrors each other. How did you go about researching this? Like what research is such a different thing for science and then English and stuff, but how did you go about what did you look at to find out this amazing yeah. information? Yeah. Well, I'm, as, as a trained historian, I approached it, you know, from a, a professional historical perspective. First thing I did was to read earlier histories of, of the university. Uh, Madison Kuhn wrote a centennial history of Michigan State College. Uh, W.J. Beals wrote a history of the college in, uh, I think, around 1913 or so it was published. I also read uh, histories of other institutions, histories of the University of Wisconsin. There had been a recent history of Western Michigan written by Larry Massey. I read Howard Peckham's history of the University of Michigan and looked at some other histories of colleges and universities really with a twofold purpose. One was just to learn some things about these uh, colleges and universities and how they came into being, but also how these historians went about dealing with an institution of higher education as a unit of analysis because it's a very complicated, complicated union. But then, of course, the writing a history of Michigan State University in any form would be impossible without the resources in the Michigan State University archives. Mm-hmm. The archives has an amazing collection of, of, uh, of uh, documents, uh, records left by students, uh, faculty, administrators, you name it, and a, a very impressive photo collection and the like. So the archives really form the, co- the core of the information that comes out in the book. Um, so just out of curiosity, this is a, a really big book. If you guys could see this book, it's pretty massive. It looks like there's a lot of information in there. So how long did it take you to do all of the research and from starting the project until it was done and your final draft was edited and complete? How long did that take? Um, well, I had a three-year contract. I started working on it before you know, that kicked in. I would say roughly four years from start to finish, from the time we had to finish, you know, we had a, we had a hard copy in, in hand. That's amazing. amazing. Was there anything that, I know you did your PhD program here, but was there anything that really sparked your interest in the university's history? Well, as I, growing up on a farm, I was interested in an agricultural college. How did it come into being? Because even though I never wanted to be a farmer, I've always been interested in things agriculture. I drive through the country, I look at how the crops are doing. You know, how is the corn any good this year? You know, does it need <laughs> rain? That that type of thing. And here was uh, an agricultural college. You know, uh, uh, and right at the beginning of the whole uh, movement to to create agricultural colleges, right here, just down the street from where I lived, was 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 Michigan. Um, and so that's, I think, really the thing that sparked my interest was here was an opportunity to really go into depth and learn about the early history and the formation and the establishment of this college 
and it uh, was right here to do. And you had this project going on where the university itself was interested in having its history written uh, or, or rewritten. Yeah. Um, so I think we're gonna we're gonna kind of try to get into the meat of this book and talk about what exactly you had written about in regards to um, the Michigan Agricultural College. But first, before we start talking about the Michigan Agricultural College in specific, will you just kind of set the scene for us and give us a brief sketch of what Michigan was like at the time, maybe the country, um, just so we kind of know where we're standing in history before we get into sure. talking about MSU? Yeah, the, the college enabling legislation was 1855. And the first classes met in 1857, and that's important to remember those dates because the country is on the eve of the Civil War. It's a country that is in terrible strife, terrible political disunity, and on the verge of the disaster of, of what the Civil War would bring. Michigan at the time had a population in 1860 of about 760,000 people. Detroit was a city of 46,000. And if you could try to picture Detroit and, you know, Oakland County, Macomb County, Wayne County today are largely, you know, are very heavily settled places. Well, there was a lot of agriculture. There were a lot of farms in these counties, which you wouldn't know that that was, was, was the case today, uh, at least not to the extent that, um, you know, it was true in 1860. Ingham County had a population of 17,500. Lansing had a population of a little over 3,000. The capital itself had been built in 1847, so it was a very new settlement community with a, not a whole lot of amenities. Uh, there were, and the census for 1860 showed that there were almost 89,000 farmers in Michigan, by far and away the largest group of occupations was farmers. This was an agricultural state. This was this was you know it was before the the industrialization that would 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 be coming later. So amazing. Let's let's get into it then. Um, can you give us a brief description of the agriculture college of the state of Michigan during its early years and what it looked like, what life was like to be a student then? Yeah. Well, first of all, picture the campus today as a swampy, tree-laden, forested area. Mosquitoes, Ooh. bears, you know, wild animals. <laughs> and, uh, oh my gosh, can you imagine running into nope. a, bear, <laughs> a bear on campus now? <laughs> and of course, the red cedar was there, you know, cutting yeah. through the campus. And so one of the things it meant was that this land had to be cleared. Mm -hmm. uh, the site was 677 acres. And the site was chosen because the act that established the college in 1855 required or called for it to uh, be no more than 10 miles from Lansing, which also meant then it could not be, be part of the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole other story. I won't really get into that, that, that rivalry probably in, in, in this interview. <laughs> Not uh, enough time. <laughs> <laughs> Especially after Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the first three buildings when the college opened were College Hall, Saints Rest, and a small barn. Sa Saints Rest was a dormitory, all, all, all male students. College Hall was a building that had all of the academic uh, facilities for the university, for the college. For, it had the chem chemistry laboratory, it had the library, the museum recitation or classrooms would have been where faculty would have had offices, the president's office would have been there. It was an, an amazing building because it really covered, covered everything. 
Um, and when the act was, uh, the 1855 act that established the college required the college to teach both an English and a scientific course. And that's really critical to our story today. Uh, that will come up again very mm -hmm. shortly. Joseph R. Williams was the first president of the college. He was an advocate for agricultural education, for agricultural college. The professors who taught with him at that first college were John Holmes, who was a professor of horticulture. He's also the treasurer of the college. Calvin Tracy, a professor of mathematics. Robert Weeks, professor of English literature and farm economy. It's an interesting combination. Mm -hmm. And Louis Fisk, who was a professor of chemistry. In May of 1857, the faculty interviewed or examined 73 young men who wanted to be students here. They determined that 53 were or 59 were academically ready for admission. And so 59 students started classes in May of 1857. And it's a good point, a good place to point out that the college remained a small college. And that was one of parts of its struggle over the years. For example, in 1895, it still only had 393 students. Uh, and that it would reach 3,000 in about 1925. So... Uh, and by 1900, the college only had 789 graduates. Wow. wow. Uh, you just sort of think today, you know, and you, you have six, 8,000 graduates, yeah. you know, at one graduation. Uh, okay, I think that, we'll go to the next yeah. question. Here. <laughs> All right. Um, so in your book, you talk a lot about um, something that you call a fork in the road during 1859 to 1861. So will you tell us the story about what happened there? Yeah, this is a very critical moment in the history of, of this institution. President Williams resigned in 1859. Uh, he was accused of spending too much money on the college and also was uh, believed to have political ambitions. And so he, he resigned from the college, and the college lost a strong leader. Mm -hmm. But I want to point out he was still was an advocate for the college. Uh, and he was an advocate for the curriculum that brought together the English course, or liberal studies, or what we would call liberal arts today, and practical agriculture and scientific agriculture. And I want to point out here that scientific agriculture is really at the heart of the creation of this institution, but nobody in 1859 really quite knew what scientific agriculture was. There was a lot of ideas coming and a lot of work coming out of Europe, which helped inform the, the desire for agricultural colleges to be established in the United States, but no one quite knew what that all looked mm -hmm. like. What is the difference between scientific and practical, did you say? Right. Well, well, scientific would be more the theoretical, the experimental, where practical is the application of what you learn mm -hmm. through your experiments, through, through your science. Okay. And, and, and chemistry was, was, everyone understood, was going to be very important. That was mm -hmm. going to be one of the base sciences. And botany and zoology and biology and geology and other sciences ultimately become part of a larger um, uh, collection of sciences, if you will, that make up scientific agriculture. But in 1859, that was not all that well understood. And uh, moving on, so when Williams resigned, the oversight of the college fell to John Gregory, who was the state superintendent of education and the state board of education. And they wanted to change the curriculum. And I should point out here that the state board of education also oversaw the normal school in Ypsilanti, which is today Eastern Michigan. Oh, okay. And that was a school for 
training teachers. Oh. And so their perspective is a little different than mm-hmm. what was what was here in, in west of, uh, east of Lansing. And Gregory and the state board really didn't understand the college mission. And Gregory himself uh, was, was very uh, uh, reluctant to spend money, didn't spend the full budget, well, then lost some of the money mm-hmm. when the legislature did the next budget. And he proposed, and the State Board of Education went along, that the four-year program be reduced to a two-year program, in essence, reducing it to a two-year technical college that would teach young men how to manage a farm, but lacking the broader education that the English course would provide. So when this was made known, the students and the faculty here rebelled. They did not want this to happen. And Lewis Fisk, who was the chemistry professor, became uh, the interim president and in many ways a leader of the resistance to this move to turn this into a two-year college, uh, training people for practical farming only. And the students believe that the English course was necessary uh, because they wanted a well-rounded curriculum to prepare them for life. Uh, And when Gregory and the State Board of Education proposed we eliminate courses in literature, history, math, and philosophy, that was not what they wanted. And they, in effect, said, we aren't going to be coming here if this is what this institution Hmm. is going to be. So the four-year curriculum was saved at this point? Or did the Morrill Act come next? Well, the Mor- yeah, the Morrill Act really doesn't enter into this particular debate. Oh, okay. Uh, the four-year curriculum was saved, in a sense, because the students and the faculty under Fisk leadership resisted the change. Mm. Williams, although he's no longer president, lobbied the legislature. Fisk laid it out in no uncertain terms in a report to the Board of Education in 1859 that science and practice should be combined the institution, the, the Agriculture College of Michigan, or the State Agriculture College, should be built upon agriculture. And he also put in his report, quote, to teach agriculture is to teach literature also. As a result, in 1861, the legislature passed an act basically reorganizing and, uh, and reestablishing the college. And what they did was they created the State Board of Agriculture, whose sole job was to oversee this institution. And this was the forerunner for the current Board of Trustees. And the legislation also uh, demanded that the college offer a four-year course, including the English course. Mm. The English course, liberal arts, were saved, which would then continue on actually for the rest, you know, throughout the history of of the institution. I think that that's a really interesting quote that you just read. Do you... um can we like delve into that a little bit? Do you happen to know why they had that viewpoint that you had to learn agriculture and English in order to be successful in agriculture? I think when you look at the contributions that the alumni made throughout uh, of this institution, you will see how what the liberal arts taught students was to read good literature, to write good compositions, and to speak and articulate good English when they were talking. And if you see this, this prepared students to write 
reports mm-hmm. uh, when they were doing research and write reports that could be understood by farmers and others out there in the real world. This enabled students to be able to stand up and articulate well-thought-out ideas, whether it be as, a, uh, as, a, as a, a leader in their communities, whether it be as a leader in their churches, whether it be just talking to their neighbors. And they were also able to un- appreciate the importance of literature, and, you would, you know, and, and it's important that books and magazines and periodicals be part of their home life and part of, what, part, part of how they yeah. went about things. So uh, students were taking both those science classes and English classes. So what was, I'm not sure if you know the in-depth of it, but what, did, what was college life like back then? It couldn't have been any close to what it is today. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, on, on the surface, that's a difficult question. But in reality, uh, the archives has uh, some good documents to help <laughs> yeah, us with this. Uh, I, I relied in the book uh, on a diary written by a student named Edward Granger, and he came here from Detroit. He only he was here only for a year, didn't graduate, but in his diary, he uh, had a lot of things to say about what he did as a student, and I'll just share some of those with you in, in <laughs> okay. quickly. Uh, Granger had a deep interest in literature and history, as did his friends. They read Milton and Shakespeare, Sir Walter Scott, Harriet Beecher Stowe. They uh, read history of of Hannibal, History of Michigan, a biography of Wellington. They looked forward to the arrival of periodicals such as The Atlantic. One references to awaiting or opening an order of books that had come from Philadelphia that they had ordered. Don't know what the titles were, but this (laughs) this, this was was, was a big moment. Along with his classmates, Granger, and one of his classmates was Albert J. Cook, who became a professor of entomology, Mm -hmm. basically the maybe probably the first real entomologist here at at, uh, Michigan Agricultural College. They went to the state library uh, where they were going to watch the legislature in action, and one of the volumes they consulted was Hogarth's paintings. So you can see they had a a broad literary interest. There was the Lyceum. The Lyceum was uh, an entity where speakers would be invited in to talk about current topics of interest to people, and that was a, a great interest that they had. And also to show that, the in, that these students had an independent streak, President Williams had wanted them to amend their constitution to prevent them from criticizing the faculty. They voted this down. They, were, they wanted their rights as American citizens to be respected. And that was, you know, Williams had to accept that. Yeah. The Lyceum was also a forerunner to literary societies. We don't have time today to go into those, but they were both intellectual and social activities. They had intellectual activities, but a lot of it depended on moved around debating and public speaking and the like. Studies, Granger tells us that at least for one day in the morning, he recited chemistry before Fisk, geometry before Tracy, literature before Abbott. And so... He had to be able to tell what their lessons, what he had learned from his lessons to his professors. Abbott, he noted, demanded that his composition be of fine quality, and Granger wrote his essay on the topic of Sir Walter Raleigh and his times. In the afternoon, they worked on the farm for three hours. Uh, regarding religion, every morning they went to chapel. Chapel services were led by the faculty. On Sundays, they either went to chapel or found their way to a church in Lansing, probably often walking the three miles to Lansing. 
Uh, Granger read through the entire Bible in 1857. For female companionship, uh, he noted that the Michigan Female College in Lansing invited some of the young men to a husking bee. And Granger and his friends were particularly um, taken by not only the young ladies, but also the treats, the coffee, the pie, the donuts, and the gingerbread. <laughs> not much different than uh, college students now, <laughs> no. always going for the free food, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was more like what their mothers had baked for them than yeah. what they got at the college. <laughs> and similarly, there were activities uh, on campus. Sometimes a faculty might host, host get-togethers like this. For, for meals... Uh, they ate in the St. Saint, Therese dining room. And when uh, Granger also noted that he received the package of goodies from his mother and he enjoyed sharing them with his friends, this was uh, canned fruits, apples, brown, brown bread, and the like, things that he didn't get here. Mm -hmm. So, again, I, always looking forward to reconnection with home. Yeah, it's kind of cool. It sounds like um, a lot of the social aspects of college also had to do with the liberal arts. Yeah, yes. at that time. That's exactly, that's, you're absolutely right. That's yeah. right. I mean, there was an uh, enormous amount of attention paid to debate. Um, and uh, there was an eight, uh, in the 1880s, the uh, college speculum was created, which was a periodical that was composed of primarily of student articles. And they were always engaging important, important issues of the day, like should women get the right to vote, mm. issues of that. And they were engaging these in a very, very seri serious way. Um, okay, so um, we wanted to talk a little bit about, you had mentioned um, Ray Stannard Baker to us before the podcast started, and we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about who he was and why he's important to uh, the history of the Michigan Agricultural College and Michigan State University. Good question. Uh, Ray Stannard Baker is, in my mind, sort of the poster boy for uh, a liberal education here at Michigan Agricultural College. And before I, before I um, say a little bit about him, I want to point out that he is one of many of the early graduates who made in incredible contributions to uh, not only Michigan but to, 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 to the national scene. Um, people like Liberty Hyde Bailey, you know, who was educated here, taught here for a few years, and went to Cornell, was a leader at, at Cornell, and others who were leaders at other land-grant institutions. You had Eugene Davenport at Illinois, William Daniels, Wisconsin, William Latta at Purdue, Charles Bessie in Iowa and Nebraska, and, and Catherine Cook Briggs. Uh, Catherine Cook Briggs was uh, the daughter of Albert J. Cook. Mm -hmm. She graduated in nine, 1893. She married Lyman Briggs. They moved to Washington where he did graduate work at Johns Hopkins and then worked for the United States Department of Agriculture. And Briggs believed in the, that, that the, uh, being a mother, a homemaker, was really a uh, most honorable profession for a woman. She homeschooled her, her daughter, Isabel. And she, Briggs herself did some publishing uh, under a pseudonym. She became interested in the psychology of Carl Jung and then later on, Catherine Cook Briggs and her daughter Isabel created the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator, mm -hmm. which, oh, is, which, yeah, which I yeah. think is still used today. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of criticism of it, but it's been an enduring test of personality yeah. and the like. And th this was a graduate of Michigan Agricultural Amazing. College. Getting to Baker. Um, 
Ray Stannard Baker graduated in the year 1889, had a degree in agriculture. He had been born in Lansing. He grew up in St. Croix Falls, Wisconsin. He married Jessie Beale, the daughter of W.J. Beale. Uh, she was of the class of 1890. Baker was an activist. He marched with Coxey's Army in 1894 from Massillon, Ohio to Washington, D.C., demanding jobs for people put out of work by the Depression of 1893. In 1895, Baker was in Newfoundland with Marconi when he received the first wireless transmissions across the Atlantic Ocean. He was the assistant editor for McClure's magazine. He also wrote for the American magazine. Baker was one of a cadre of authors at the turn of the, 19th, of the 20th century who was, were known as the muckrakers, who were very critical of, of excesses and abuses in American industry and American life. Baker became the confidant of three presidents, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and Woodrow Wilson. He served Wilson at the peace conference in Paris after World War I and become, was so trusted by the Wilsons that uh, they allowed him access to the Wilsons' papers, and he wrote an eight-volume biography of Woodrow Wilson, for which he received the Pulitzer Prize. Amazing. Yeah. Well, one last question, and something I've been waiting to ask. So, as you know, our dean's report was based off your amazing work on the history of the Michigan Agriculture College. Um, would you would would you be willing to comment on the dean's report for the college being at the crossroads in 1859 and 61? Yeah. First of all, I, I was it was new to me to have a report that was video. <laughs> yeah. Pretty amazing video, too. Yes, yeah, it, was. it was. It was. I mean, in, 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 in a very short time, I thought they really captured this critical moment. Yeah. And then going on to have the beef biographies of, of, of several um, alumni was, was very effective. And, yeah. and as I said, this is where if, if this had been in uh, uh, an earlier time, I would fit Ray, would have fit Ray Stannard <laughs> Baker and some of these other people, Catherine, yeah. you know, uh, Catherine Cook Briggs and, and the like into this because that's where the, the real significance of the uh, uh, liberal arts uh, and the English course going back to the 19th century, the real significance of it was how it played out and helped prepared young men and women to take their place and make yeah. some really amazing contributions to yeah. American life. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Keith, for being here with us. This was so, uh, you brought history to life. It was amazing. <laughs> yes. well, thank you very much for having me. Um, a big thank you to everyone involved with this podcast, including our technical producer, Daniel Trago, and our marketing director and producer, Ryan Kilcoyne. And of course, you can access all of Michigan State University's College of Arts and Letters Liberal Arts Endeavor podcast. Ooh, that's a mouthful. <laughs> uh, season one and our current season, season two, at cal.msu.edu slash about slash podcasts. Last but not least, the ideas and opinions expressed on this program do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Letters, any of our sponsors, or any official entities of Michigan State University. And you can tune in next time when we will be talking about the comic books program here at MSU. Woo! Thanks for listening, everyone. Go green. Go white. <laughs>